Well, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is a very, very generous church. And if January through November is our statement on that, then December is our exclamation point. I want to show you a picture. When I walked into my office or our offices on Monday, this is what I was greeted with. These are some of the gifts that you gave for the kids at uh, Ace in the City. And this comes after many of you had already gathered at their fellowship dinner and had agreed to step up and help support a year of programming in 2016. And that is in addition to some scholarships that many of you gave money for so some of their teens could go on a trip uh, down to Mexico. And that comes on top of a grant that we were able to give them and it comes on top of a, uh, a year-end check we were able to give for $3,000 because of some generous year-end giving. And that's one of our partners. We have another partner, a children's home in Juarez, Mexico. And even as the group that we sent was coming back, I got to say, we're sending a check down because we had a generous year-end donation, actually several of them. And so literally when I was sending the email to say, hey, there's a check coming your way, it's for $12,000. Um, as I was sending that check, Adam, the director, was in the prayer room just praying and seeking God, saying, we have got to have a miracle here, basically, to finish this year. Um, some of the staff are even going without, I know, it is, praise God. I mean, some of the staff are going without salaries and things like that to make sure that the kids were taken care of. So, so that is on top of the child, kids that we sponsor. That's on top of about 5,000 in checks that we were able to send down recently, in part to pay for some showers to get fixed. They had one working shower, a dribbly shower for the entire upper floor of girls in the girls' dorm. One dribbly shower. And so we said, that can't be. So we were able to send a check down for that. So all this to say, um, the giving that, that you do is remarkable for most people, but it's not remarkable in the sense of this is who we are as Christians, isn't it? In fact, I would encourage you to write this down. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to take out your notes and write this down. Gift giving is in a Christian's DNA, isn't it? Gift giving is in our DNA because the entire Christian movement began with a gift, didn't it? This is, this, we are the product of a gift. And there is no greater gift that we can give than the gift of sharing good news of Jesus Christ with the world. And I don't say that as a cliche. I say that as the truth. Now, let me be clear. Empty religion is not a great gift. A list of do's and don'ts is not a great gift. But if we can authentically share the gift that is Christ, there is no greater gift. Some of our women just wrapped up a small group experience where they discussed a group by Jen Hatmaker. I want to give you a little excerpt from this book, speaking of this gift. She writes, the best thing that we can do for our kids is to give them Jesus. He is always the true answer. He is the strongest touchstone. He is the best example. When I'm grasping as a spiritual mentor to my kids, there he is. When words and right answers fail me, his life and legacy deliver. With good reason, my kids may doubt their parents, the church, Christian culture, and their own understanding. But it is harder to doubt a Savior that's as good as Jesus Jesus is the only thing that will endure. He trumps parenting techniques, church culture, tight boundary, and best laid plans. Jesus can lead our children long after they've left our homes. He will lead them when our work is through. So let's give our kids Jesus. 
Now, this is certainly the prayer of every parent, right? If you're a Christian parent, this is our prayer. But also, every Christian person that I know wants to, to know how do you share this gift in a way that's helpful, in a way that's authentic. How do you do this? How do you share this gift? It is a challenge to do this well. And one of the reasons is because if you know Jesus, you know he is not easy to box up, is he? But he is not easy to box up Jesus of Nazareth. If you're not familiar with Jesus, let me just show you a little glimpse of what I'm talking about here. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Now, if you don't have a Bible, I want to let you know that we have some Bibles here today, and each week we keep a stack at the tables. I'm excited to announce that we were down to our last six. We'll get more. I love this. I love that we're able to give Bibles away, and I love that you're taking them and reading them. Thank you for taking them. It's a gift to you, and thanks for providing so that we can do that. Here we go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says this about Jesus of Nazareth. In him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is why it's hard to box up Jesus, because in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How do you fit the fullness of God on a bumper sticker? How do you fit the fullness of God in a slogan? How do you summarize the fullness of God in your little elevator conversation? You can't. And every time, every time we share the gift of Jesus, we have to leave something out because there's so much. Again, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, let me show you what I mean. Let's take that Colossians 1.19 and let's just look a little bit to one side and to the other. So let's start with verse 15. About Jesus, it is written, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. All we did here was add just a few verses to get a better picture of who he is. And all of a sudden, the full understanding of the fullness of God starts to create such a picture that we can't get our minds fully around it. And the more we explore the full revelation of the scripture, the more we see that Jesus of Nazareth, he can't be reduced to a single adjective or a single image or a single metaphor or a single character quality. So let's say you want to give the gift of Jesus. Where do you start? How do you package that gift? Well, I want to, at this time, ask my lovely assistant, Emma, to come forward. We're going to give a little object lesson to show you how difficult it is to take the fullness of God that was in Christ and try to package it up. So we have this nice little Christmas stocking here, which coincidentally has an E 
on it. Um, why don't you take that stocking? And, and, and what we have here is a number of objects in this bin that represent these different aspects of Christ. And she's going to try to fit them all into one package. All right? So here is a list of some things, some metaphors, some, some images that are given through the scriptures about Jesus. For instance, we have Genesis Jesus. If you want to give the gift of Jesus, you want to put that in there because by him all things are created. There's also Revelation Jesus. I just finished re reading Revelation again. And you've got this mighty warrior in the book of Revelation who's going to strike down the enemies of God. You also have friend of sinners Jesus. You have raising the bar Jesus. You have social justice Jesus. You have humble servant Jesus. Look at the humble servant following in the footsteps. We've got sacrifice. That was right on cue. That was awesome. Um, we've got sacrificial lamb Jesus. We have son of David Jesus. We have good shepherd Jesus. We have great physician Jesus. You keeping up? Here we go. we got master teacher Jesus. we got miracle worker Jesus. we got welcome the chi children Jesus. we got take up your cross Jesus. we got turn the other cheek Jesus. We have turn over the tables Jesus. We have deliverance Jesus. We have high priest Jesus. We have great prophet Jesus. we got bridegroom Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we have all these great I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. Jesus says, I am the word, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the gate, I am the truth, I am the resurrection, I am the vine. And that's not all. In, in, in Isaiah, we read this prophecy. We're hoping to do this next Christmas to take each one of these. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father, prince of peace. So let's give them Jesus. Let's give the king of the Jews, the savior of the world, the Lord of all. And if we do all this, do we have Jesus fully wrapped up? No, we don't. That's not all. If we were to paint a picture of Jesus using all these colors, it's incomplete. That's Jesus. That's why he's so hard to wrap up. Well, can you please give my assistant a hand here? Um, and as she's returning to her scene, let it go, it's good. As <laughs> object lesson's done, <laughs> as Emma's returning to her scene, I want to encourage you to write this in your notes about Jesus. We worship a multifaceted Messiah. And one of our critical tasks as his disciples is to develop a contagious sense of awe and wonder and reverence. Instead of trying to say, here's exactly how G who Jesus is, Here, let's put him in this box. Wouldn't the world be better served if we developed this sense of awe and reverence? Let me tell you about Jesus. He's this and this. Our world needs to see more disciples of Jesus who don't claim to have the answers. Because those who walk most closely with Jesus were often the last ones to predict what he will say or do. Just when you think you've got Jesus figured out, here's how he's going to answer that prayer. Here's what he's going to do in that situation. Just when you think you've got him figured out. Our Lord says something or does something or doesn't say or doesn't do something that was unexpected. And those who reduce Jesus to simply a friend of sinners or simply a do-gooder or simply a suffering servant or simply a prince of peace, as great as those things are, if you reduce Jesus to just Jesus, you're going to be leaving something out. And you aren't giving people the gift of the fullness of God that was in Christ Jesus. They often say when you board a plane... And the oxygen mask comes down in the event of emergency. Who are you supposed to put it on first? Put it on yourself first. And, and that's what we want to encourage you to do, actually 
this Christmas, with this little time we have left, is to soak in the full wonder. Breathe deep. Breathe deep these next few days so that as we enter into 2016, we can enter in with more of a fullness of God as we press into this wonder. Well, may I present to you for your consideration that we would better equipped to share the gift of Christ the more we press into the wonder of Christmas. And for the last three weeks, Brandon and I have been doing the best we can to say here's just one small way you can do that. It's through the songs, the great songs of Christmas. Two weeks ago, we made a case that a song like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel can take you into the longing that our world has for a Savior. And then last week, Brandon did a great job of asking us to reflect deeply on the song Hark the Herald Angels Sing, a song that can help us celebrate what God did. And then this week, I want to make the case that there's a song called What Child Is This? that can draw us into the wonder. Who is this kid? Who is this child in the manger? It draws us into the wonder and the mystery. It's a song that doesn't attempt to cover everything and to say, Jesus is this, 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 this. It's a song that helps us to breathe deep of the mystery, the wonder of what we call the incarnation. Well, real quickly, here's a little background on the song. It was written by a guy named William Chatterton Dix. He was born in Bristol, England. And I'm bringing up his name because his middle name was given to him by his father who loved poetry. And he was named after a specific poet. The reason I bring that up is the very next series we're going to do that starts up on the 27th is a series about this name that God's given. We don't hold that name lightly. The fact that he gave us the name Emmanuel, God with us, this powerful name. So we're going to explore what does it mean to have this name because very often in the scriptures you see when God gives a name, and he gave us this name, when God gives a name, it's speaking to something that isn't yet, something that God desires people to become. So we're going to press into that. And here's this guy. He was given a name of a poet by his dad, and we're singing this poetry now. All this time later, he was named after a poet, and we are the beneficiaries of his poetry. Now, like great art, this poem, this What Child Is This poem that was later set to music, it, it, it comes from a place of very personal experience. Often, if you look at the backstory to great art, there's a great story behind it. So if we go to our next slide, we see behind this song, What Child Is This, this beautiful poetry, William became seriously ill. And he was confined to his bed for an extended period of time. He underwent a spiritual crisis during his illness, and he spent much time praying and reading Christian literature. And he came through that crisis, not rejecting God, but with a deeper faith. And he devoted much of his life later to Christian-themed poetry. Now I'm going to geek out with you a little bit in this uh, this message here today. I'm going to draw a connection between this song and the silver screen. There's a little movie that was released. Maybe you heard about it uh, this weekend. Star Wars is uh, playing, actually, this weekend. Um, do we have any fans out there? So far? All right. All right. Well, there's three verses to this song, and they very loosely line with um, the episodes from the original trilogy. Uh, verse one of this song reminds me a little bit of episode four, verse two, episode five, and verse three, episode six. Verse one goes like this this song. What child is this who laid to rest 
on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ, the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste, bring him law, the babe, the son of Mary. Well, if you're not familiar with the real history, a long time ago in a real land far, far away, there wasn't just one, but there was a series of evil empires that came through a particular place. And they ushered in an era of great darkness. And the people had brought upon themselves the divine equivalent of Order 66 because of their own sin. The prophets, because of this, had been long silent. And the kings had been long dethroned. It was the year 4 BC, and the Roman Empire ruled the land, and a new order of corrupt priests controlled the temple. And it was into this world of darkness that there was born a child of hope, a new hope, a child of light. And this song draws us into the wonder as it asks this question, what child is this whom angels are greeting? Now that's significant, very significant. And I would love to do an entire series on angels sometime. Maybe we will. Angels are a unique and powerful race of immortals. We don't become angels when we die. They're a different group of beings altogether. They're innumerable. They possess powers beyond our own. About two-thirds of the angels are good. There's others who are evil, including Satan, who sometimes masquerades as an angel of light. The Greek word that's translated often in our scriptures as angels, it's a word that means messenger. The angels were messengers of God and so much more. Angels are often hidden from our eyes. When they reveal themselves, people are often afraid. They stand in awe and wonder, <coughs> excuse me, at these beings. And often what they do is they start to worship these angels. And the angels, the good ones, say, don't worship me. Worship who? God. Angels minister to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. Angels rejoice when a sinner repents. Angels have encamped around the righteous and protected them from their enemies. They've carried out God's vengeance and wrath and will do so at the end of the age. Well, in this dark age we spoke of, after centuries of silence on the part of the angels, after hundreds of years with no confirmed angel sightings, the angels returned to earth. They appeared in a temple. They disrupted dreams. They broke forth in song, and they brought a message of new hope that centered on one particular child. And this child, his birth was greeted not only by the angels, but also by shepherds. And that's significant. In 4 BC, shepherding wasn't the job you aspired to. Shepherding was the job you ended up in. And Yoda might put it like this, if eyes have you, prophetic signs you will see. I tried to do the voice, but I would just embarrass myself and my family, bring shame upon us all. All right, the presence, let me talk about these shepherds. The presence of the shepherds is an example of the Bible's brilliant brevity. As I mentioned earlier, shepherd was a lowly profession, but in ancient Israel, the term shepherd also could refer to a ruler or a king. So you're the lowliest, you're the greatest. The peasant king who was laid in a manger was visited by shepherds. And the 
this peasant king would also become the good shepherd and the sacrificial lamb. This humble king of kings was born on the outskirts of the city of David, where King David, who was once a shepherd himself, was called in from those same fields and was anointed as the shepherd over God's people. So too were the shepherds called forth from tending their flocks, from which the sacrificial lambs in Jerusalem may have been selected to honor the child who would one day die on a cross outside Jerusalem gates at an hour when the temple sacrifice was made. You got all that. Isn't it crazy? So this is why when we sing this song, what child is this whom the shepherds are greeting? It's because it takes all of that and it says not only are the angels singing, History itself has prepared this moment for. Well, verse 1 ends with an invitation to bring him laud. When I was a little kid, why are we bringing Jesus laud? I don't get this. Why are we singing about glory and eggshells and all? Laud, it's a beautiful word. Laud is to bring your highest praise. The song says, bring your highest praise. That's verse 1. Then comes verse 2. Roughly again episode 5 in the Star Wars saga. Why lies he in such mean estate? This is the child of hope. What's he doing on that desert planet? What lies he in such mean estate where ox and lambs are feeding good Christians fear for sinners here? The silent word is pleading. Now, if you remember, I mentioned that the people had brought oppression upon themselves as a result of their sin. And now you've got this word, this child of hope and promise made flesh. And he's interceding on their behalf, and he's going to do more than that as the verse continues. We see nails and spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail this word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And it's interesting they tie in Mary into all of this when there's swords and, and nails that are going to pierce him. The hope-filled prophecies surrounding the birth of the chosen one were inseparable from the suffering that he would undergo on our behalf. Let's quickly look at one of these prophetic words. If you have your Bible, you might want to look at Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 22, Luke 2, 22. And I'm going to resist the urge to go off on a whole tangent about connections between Luke and Jesus. But I will mention that the book of the Bible that has the most about the origin story of the chosen one is the book of, just saying. All right, so let's take a look at the prophecy that was given to Mary, the mother of Jesus, shortly after the birth of her son, says this, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, was strong with this one, you might say. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he came in the spirit into the temple. I want to hit pause here for just a second. Someday I want to come back and do a full-blown series on the Holy Spirit. Because what does this mean? What does it mean to be led by the spirit? And then what does it mean to come into the spirit, into the temple? I do want to say this, though. If you've never heard about the Holy Spirit, if you've never had someone pray that the spirit would be filled and, and overflowing in you, we'd love to do that today. There'd be people in the back that would love to pray with you about that or anything. All right, let's continue on. Where did I leave off here? And when the parents then brought the child Jesus to do for Jesus, according to the custom of law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms. He blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
Here comes the prophecy. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory and your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce through your own soul too. That same spirit that led Simeon to the temple, the same spirit that told Simeon that Jesus was the chosen one, the same spirit's got a word for Mary says there's going to be a sword that's going to pierce your soul too. And that came to pass, didn't it? At the age of 12, she, she lost her son for three days. At the age of 30, she thought he'd gone crazy. And Mary watched in horror as the Prince of Peace was betrayed by his own and mocked and beaten and executed in brutal fashion. Verse 2 takes us to that dark place. To the shadow of the cross, it fell over the manger. Lot. Seems we do that a lot in here, doesn't it? We read the Bible. Lot. The story doesn't end there. It doesn't end on a cross. It doesn't end with the powers of darkness winning. The powers of darkness thought they had set a trap that would end the rebellion, but verse 2 is not the end of the episode or the story. Let's look at verse 3. It goes, so bring him incense. Bring him gold, bring him myrrh. Come, peasant, come, king, to own him. The king of kings, salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. A virgin is singing her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. Now, I was eight and a half when the original Star Wars came out, and I had never seen anything like it. As a boy, I was drawn into this story. And I didn't like episode five. I liked the big stomper things, whatever they're called. But I didn't like how Luke's hand gets cut off, spoiler alert, and Han Solo gets all frozen up, and the Empire's in control. I didn't like how it ended, especially since we had to wait like three years or something until he finished it. But that wasn't the end. That's not how the story ends. My friends are on the other side. We're on the other side of episode five. Darkness will still have its moments. We all know that, don't we? Darkness will still have its moments until Jesus comes back the second time. But God gave the world a gift like no other when he sent his one and only son into our world to teach us his ways, to live the life that we couldn't live, to pay the price we couldn't afford, to conquer the power of sin and death so that we can spend eternity with God and one another in a world where there will finally be no more darkness, only light. And we're going to sing a song in just a few minutes, this song. And when we hit this verse, verse 3, sing it like you mean it. Would you do that? And when I say sing it like you mean it, that doesn't mean to do anything like the person next to you is doing. Sing it like you mean it. Don't miss this opportunity to hail, hail this prince, to sing these praises, to bring him laud, because he's the one. How do I know that? Because 2,000 years ago, a virgin was singing a lullaby. How many of you have had health class? How many of you know that's not how it works? 
I've taught health class. That's not how it works. What's going on here is that is a sign. This is the one. It's a sign that was spoken seven centuries before. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a what? He'll give you a sign. He'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. This is that. This is the sign. She's singing the lullaby. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The Messiah is here. And when he came, God sent his messengers, the angels. They proclaimed the good news to the shepherds. And that wasn't the only part of the birth announcement. God lit up the sky. And that star drew wise men from the east. The king of the Jews was not the king of the Jews only. And these travelers from the ends of the earth brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now we know about gold. At the time, it was the world's most precious metal. Then there's this frankincense. I did some reading on frankincense. It shows up in ancient Jewish, Greek, Roman, and even Indian, as in India, texts dating back to the Neolithic period, which everyone knows is from the 6th through 4th millennium BC. There's probably a millennium falcon tie in there, but I don't have one for you. But I'm going to press on. Frankincense, here's the point. Frankincense was valuable. It was a rare resin. I understand that it could not, it was not domesticated back then, so you had to find this plant, and you could only get the sap, the resin, once a year in the winter. So very rare, very valuable. That's why they were writing about it seven, 8,000 years ago. Frankincense, here's the deal. As an incense, it was used to honor the gods. And it even shows up in our Old Testament. You might want to write down Exodus 30, verses 9 through 38. When they created this tabernacle back in Moses' time, the only authorized incense that you could use had frankincense in it. Interesting. You used frankincense to honor the gods. And then there's myrrh. Wish you had more time for this, but myrrh comes from the same family of plants as frankincense. It had a number of uses, and myrrh was offered to Jesus here at his birth. If you look in the scriptures, it was offered again to him at the cross, and it was applied to his body at his death. So what child is this who's lying in a manger? Angels are singing. Shepherds are present. And then these wise men are bringing presents, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are gifts. You don't offer a king. You may offer them to a king, but you know who you offer them to? A god. That's who people offer those to. Well, one of the things I love about this song, it is not just descriptive, it gets prescriptive here in verse 3. And when you hit verse 3, bring it. Bring not just your praise, Bring your gifts. I don't want to pause right now and just pray the Holy Spirit fills you with what that means. God, would you do that? Holy Spirit, bring to our mind right now, what would it mean for us to bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh? What does it mean for us to give with holding nothing back? What does it mean with our relationships to hold nothing back from you? What does it mean when it comes to forgiveness to hold nothing back from you? What does it mean with our media choices to hold nothing back from you? What does it mean for our future to hold nothing back from you? 
God, may your Holy Spirit fill us now with our minds and our thoughts that we can bring ourselves fully, fully to you as we close the service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at this time, I want to invite those from the worship band that are going to be leading this next song to come forward. And as they do, I'd encourage you to take your notes one last time and write this down, please. Great songs, great songs can help us experience and share the wonder of Christmas. There is no way to box up Jesus, is there? You can't do it. You can't box him up. And the song doesn't attempt to. The song doesn't attempt to say, here is the checklist of everything that is Jesus. We're going to sing about it. We'll be here for six hours. What the song does is it draws us into the wonder. No song can completely capture Jesus. The disciple of John says this about Christ at the end of his gospel, John 21, 25. There were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. And a great song like this doesn't even attempt to put Jesus in a box. It does the opposite. It draws us into the wonder. And it says, what child is this? And then it says, he's Christ, the Lord, so him. Let's pray. Let's hit the lights. Let's get this ready. Let's focus. God, thank you. Thank you for artists, musicians, poets who can help us have opportunities like we have before us right now to enter in to the wonder of the day when you visited the earth for the first time. May we commemorate that right now. May we honor it, God. May we honor it through our praises and our offerings. In Jesus' name.